Well, as Pastor Paul said, my name is Zach Griffith, and I am a pastoral resident here at the church. And most of my time here has been spent in Fireside, our young adults ministry, which is really great at Fireside. We hope to provide a space for young adults to come, connect, and do so while we teach and worship, um, worship God together. It's a really awesome time. And actually, lately at Fireside, we've introduced a new series on the attributes of God. And what's really special about the attributes of God is we're basically just asking the question and seeking to answer the question, what is God like? And in some ways, that's a really complicated question because God is so many things, so many wonderful things. He is omnipresent, omniscient, holy, glorious, truthful, faithful, omnipotent, eternal, independent, immutable, and so much more. And all of these terms carry with them some very significant theological weight and value. They're rich and they're beautiful. The only right response to these things is to worship. But if we're looking to sum up all of that in a one phrase or one sentence response, how would we answer the question, what is God like? Well, I believe the best way to respond to that question is, simp- is with a simple phrase, that there is none like him. <laughs> Why do I bring up what's going on in Fireside and what we're talking about? Well, first of all, I wanted to shamelessly plug Fireside, and if you're a young adult, we'd love to have you come out on a Wednesday night and meet in the chapel, and I'd love to get you signed up for our newsletter even. But more than that, our text today asks a very similar question. Perhaps you've already noticed it in verse 18. It says, who is a God like you? And the answer is still the same, and it's going to serve as our main idea of the message this morning, that there is none like him. There is none like him. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's none like him. Good job. All right, well, before we dig into this idea even more, I think we should be asking the question, what has led up to this point in the book? If you've noticed, these are the last three verses of Micah. It's not usually great to start at the end of a book to figure out what's going on, so we gotta back up a little bit and ask the question, what has led up to this point where the author ends on this note, who is a God like you? Well, if we look back, it won't take us long to learn that Micah is speaking out against the sin of God's people. And as a prophet, Micah's job was to speak on behalf of God, warning them about the judgment rising up against against them because of their sin. So I went ahead and I selected three different verses from three different chapters at the beginning of Micah to kind of get this tone and this image across. So Micah 1, verse 7 says, All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. Micah 2, verse 3, Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. And Micah 3, 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. So in summary, the message of this book to the people is that disaster is coming because of sin. And yet, at the same time that he promises disaster to come, this book contains, contains a really unique message of hope that will also come through one who is described to be a ruler in Israel, 
whose coming is from the ancient of days, who promises to be a shepherd and to, fl- and to guide his flock in the strength of the Lord. It says in chapter five all of these things. It also says that people will dwell securely and live in peace because of this individual, this king. And I probably don't have to say much more for us to know who that individual is. It's Jesus. It's the Christ. Son of God came down to earth to live, to die, to live again so that you and I could do the same. And the fact that it's possible for people who deserve destruction and disaster to instead experience peace and new life is what leads Micah to ask this question. Who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? He asks because he understands both the sin of the people and the punishment for their sin, and yet he knows that God is providing a way of salvation. Who is a God like you? So that's the question. The answer, there is none like him, is our main idea. And specifically, there is none like him because of two different reasons. I'm just gonna serve as our main points. The first reason that there is none like him is because he is more gracious. He is more gracious than anyone or anything. This comes from verses 18 and 19, so I'm gonna go ahead and read these again. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So now that we've made it past the first six words of these verses, who is a God like you? We get our first point that he is more gracious. More gracious than what exactly? Well, you can answer it however you want. The statement remains the same. He is more gracious than anyone. And I know this because I just read those verses about pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, With all that is described in this book, all the sin and all the devastation and disaster that's promised because of sin, the author closes with this final thought that God forgives because he is more gracious. I know that it's easy for many of us, myself included, to think that God is more gracious. We know that to be true, but we doubt sometimes that it's true when it comes to the things that we've done. If that's you, and you feel like your sin falls under some kind of category as unforgivable, then I think these words are written just for you. If you notice, he doesn't just say that God forgives sin. Who is a God like you who just forgives sin? He says that God is gracious and loving in seven different ways. You notice that? Seven different ways. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna actually practice counting those seven different ways. So I'm gonna read them again And I want you guys to count with me out loud every time you see a sentence or a phrase that ends with God showing his graciousness, okay? You guys ready for that? All right, I'll count with you. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, one. And passing over transgression, two. For the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever, three. Because he delights in steadfast love, four. He will again have compassion on us. Five, 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Six, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Seven, did you guys hear that? God just told you he has more grace for your sin, no matter what it is, in seven different ways. I think the Bible is anticipating all of our doubt. It's beautiful how the Bible does that. He knows that if you would have just heard that God pardons your iniquity, you would have said, I don't know, I don't know if that's for me. Does he pardon all of it? Then he follows that up with, he'll pass over your transgression. Even my transgression? Yes, you, the remnant of his inheritance, he won't retain his anger forever. Are you sure? God might be angry at me. No, he delights in giving you steadfast love. Every time that you respond with doubt, God has a promise of grace for you. I think he wants to drill this into our heads because he knows that we are very sinful people, but he also knows we're gonna forget. But he doesn't want us to freak out. We don't know or we don't not know what to do when we sin. We know exactly what to do now. We take it to the Lord because there is none like him. He is more gracious. These verses contain some really beautiful language. I wanna walk through it just quickly. Pardoning iniquity, we're probably pretty familiar with. We know that means forgiveness. But what about passing over transgression? What does that remind you of? It should remind us of the Passover where God told his people to kill a lamb spread the blood of the lamb over the doorframe to their house so that when the angel of the Lord came to take the lives of the firstborn in Egypt, he would pass over the homes who listened and obeyed the word of the Lord. The author wants to remind you that of that visual of God passing over and giving grace to his people. This verse also contains language of steadfast love or other translations might say loyal love. What I think is really beautiful about this description of God's grace is that we see it's actually to God's very own delight that he gives out grace. Giving out grace is a delight with him. That means that when you and I run to him in need of grace, he's not waiting to give a lecture on what you did wrong. He's actually excited about the opportunity to show you how gracious he is, how amazing he is. Think about God being giddy at the thought of giving you grace. It's not, ten, it's not the, the way we tend to think about God interacting with our sin. Notice also in verse 19 that the author says he will again have compassion on us. He will again tread our iniquities underfoot. That word again doesn't ever fade away. That word is written there and will stay there forever. He will again have compassion on you. The author says here that he will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. How deep is the ocean? Does anybody know that off the top of your head? Probably not too many of us know how deep the ocean is. That's okay, I actually looked it up for us this week. But I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not gonna tell you how, how deep the ocean is because the point isn't for us to understand exactly how far away our sin has been removed from us. The point he's trying to make is that your sins are gone. Gone forever. When something plunges into the depths of the ocean, you'll never see it again. A couple months ago, I actually experienced this. I was on a vacation in Florida with some family, and I waded out about waist deep into the water, and I was having a conversation 
and I was a little bit turned to a big wave and I didn't see it coming. And this wave came and it smacked me in the face and my glasses flew off, off of my face and into the water. And I stumbled around, I had them in my hand, I almost grasped them and then just like that they were gone. And my friends around me were help, trying to help me. I was like, guys, guys, this is gone. There's no point. There's no point in trying to find those. When something falls away to the bottom of the ocean, they're gone for good. There's no point in trying to look for them again. That was the shallows. I was like waist deep. This is the depths, God says, that he plunges your sin into. One commentator notes that the way the author talks about sin in verse 19 is actually in a way that we would expect him to talk about an enemy army. The author wants us to see God as trampling over iniquity, like he would conquer over armies, placing them under his foot. He wants to call to mind what happened when Moses split open the Red Sea, allowing for the Israelites to walk through, but also collapsing the sea together over the Egyptian chariots, burying them into the depths of the sea. This imagery would be very familiar to the people reading this for the first time, but it also should be familiar to us as Bible readers. And the author is using it to say that sin is our enemy and God will have total victory over it. Just like every other enemy army that rises up against God's people, God will have total victory over it. So why such an emphasis on grace, having victory over our sin. I think there's a couple reasons that the author writes about God's graciousness seven different times in seven different ways. First one is because we tend to forget this much. And second, because we tend to sin this much. When we forget about God's grace, his forgiveness, it's most likely because we've become paralyzed by our sin. It's intimidating to us, it creeps into our lives. We let it become the ultimate judge of who we are, when in reality, the ultimate judge of who we are is the same person who has more grace to cover all of our sin. I know it's a lot of sin. The author is very aware of the deceitfulness of man. He knows that for however many ways and however many times he writes it, you and I are still gonna need more reminders of God's grace. But he does give us seven. Seven is one for every week. Maybe one thing, small practical thing you could do this week is take one of these reminders and plug it in for every day of the week on your phone. Remind yourself that God pardons your iniquity, that he treads your iniquity underfoot, that he casts all your sins into the sea. It'd be nice to start your day with a reminder like that. Or better yet, that you might be a reminder for somebody that needs to hear it. Someone wrongs you you can remind them that you forgive them and that God forgives them as well. So not only is no one like him because he is more gracious, but our second point is there is no one like him because he is more faithful, more faithful. Verse 20 says this, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you sworn to our fathers from the days of old. To recall the faithfulness of God, the author reminisces of God's faithfulness in history. And while he reminisces of God's past faithfulness, he's already anticipating God's faithfulness in the future. 
His confession is both future-oriented and at the same time inspired by the past. You can see it. You will show faithfulness in the future. And to who? To Jacob and to Abraham, men from the past. Why did the author include these names? Well, I want you to imagine that these names are not just name-dropping for credibility, but he includes Jacob and Abraham as hyperlinks, almost. You can imagine, if you look down at your Bible, that it's underlined and written in blue. And if you clicked on those hyperlinks, what would you find? We find promises. Promises. In Genesis 28, God promises that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Jacob and his descendants. Going back a few generations and a few chapters earlier, Genesis chapter 12, we see the exact same promise being made to Abraham. So through Abraham and Jacob's descendants, did God bless all the families of the earth? Did he do it? Was he faithful? To find out, we might need to use Ancestry.com. We have to follow a lineage. But before Ancestry.com was doing its thing, the Bible was very concerned with tracing this family line. He was very concerned because he wanted you to know about his faithfulness. What we find if we trace that family lineage, you'll see that it culminates in one being born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promises to Jacob and Abraham. It is through him that all the families of the earth are blessed and will be blessed and will continue to be blessed. All over scripture, you see time and time again, God is faithful to the promises he makes. You could probably open up to any page in your Bible and you will automatically see promises being made and faithfulness coming through and God coming through in ways in which we would never believe. But God's faithfulness is magnified when you briefly consider how unfaithful we are. Chances are that if you've lived for more than 10 minutes, you learned that other people let you down. I'm sure all of us can relate to being, or to experiencing unfaithfulness of friends, family, co-workers, and for as often as we've experienced unfaithfulness happen to us, the truth is that we've been just as unfaithful to others, and more than others, we've been unfaithful to God. Learning that people are unfaithful is one of life's first lessons. You find out early on that you can't just take somebody's word for it. You got to make a promise, right? And somewhere along the way, even the power of a promise wears out, and you learn that you got to do something even better, which I've actually figured out the best way to reassure someone of your faithfulness is the pinky promise. The pinky promise is the most effective way, it really is, to reassure someone that you can come through for them. I've made many a promise with this pinky. So many that even pinky promises have somewhat lost their power. I bet many of you didn't know that when a pinky promise is made, you're agreeing that if you break the pinky promise, the other person can break your pinky. Did you guys know that? I had no idea. I was growing up making pinky promises left and right, and I had no idea that I was agreeing that if I didn't come through, I was about to have my pinky broken. And I was making promises I had no intention of coming through on. But the point of the pinky promise is to make sure you have some skin in the game, literally. I've made many promises 
that I needed some accountability to. And the pinky holds you accountable. You're risking something, putting something up for collateral. People like you and me need some collateral, something to hold us accountable. But God doesn't need to put anything up for collateral for you to be assured that he's going to come through. He doesn't have to add anything to a promise to hold him accountable. He is God, therefore, he is faithful. What it means for God to be God is that he's never let anyone down. He always has been and always will be faithful. He always stayed true to his word. He has come through on every promise. He is the definition of loyalty. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in his character. They find their yes in his faithfulness. And the most absurd fact of God's faithfulness to you and me is that he chose to enter a covenant relationship with us. Meaning that even if we don't hold up our end of the deal, which we don't, he's going to hold up his. Covenants are not like contracts. Contracts are easy to get out of when the other party fails to comply. Covenants are a whole other beast. (laughs) Anybody who's married or has even observed a marriage knows this. Covenants are supposed to be binding even when the other person fails miserably, which is what you and I have done. Yet God remains faithful to his covenant, and his covenant is one of grace. You might say, Zach, how do you know that I've failed miserably? (laughs) I don't know you, I know humans, but I'm glad you asked either way. Micah 6, 8 actually tells us exactly what it is that the Lord requires of us. He said, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God? Have you ever wondered what God wants you to do with your life? It's probably one of the most often questions pastors get asked. What does God want me to do with my life? Well, the answer, one of the answers is right here. Go do some justice. (laughs) What does that mean? It means go do something right. Live righteously. Put on your to-do list this week to love kindness. Not just receive kindness, but to love kindness. What about walking humbly with your God? I don't know about you, but sometimes when I somehow manage to read my Bible consistently or pray throughout the day, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like, I'm walking with God right now. Okay, life's pretty good. God must really love me. No, then I'm arrogant and I didn't walk humbly. God sums up the life that he requires of us with these three commands. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with him. So do you do this? When was the last time you made it one day with forgetting, without forgetting to do one of these three things? We don't do this. We do the opposite. We promote injustice. We love to be loved. We walk arrogantly, thinking that we're good without him. In a word, we are unfaithful. I'm just here to encourage you guys this morning. Hope that's helpful for you. But here's the thing, the fact that God has offered unfaithful people freedom, salvation, eternal life, should make you all 
fall on your knees saying, who is a God like this? And that's what's happening in this book, the end of the book of Micah. The author sees the sinfulness of man juxtaposed to the grace and the faithfulness of God. And it leads him to conclude that there is none like him. He is more gracious and he is more faithful. God's merciful and faithful offering of salvation to people like us, unfaithful people, all comes together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's in him that we see God's graciousness and his faithfulness personified. Jesus is the proof of God's faithfulness, not only to Jacob, not only to Abraham, but to College Park Church, to you and to me. When you and I fail to do justice, fail to love kindness, fail to walk humbly, Jesus' finished work on the cross pardons our iniquity and passes over our transgression. It's because of Jesus' victory over the grave that we have victory over sin. It's because of God's faithfulness to provide Jesus that we can trust in his forgiveness and goodness to chase us the rest of our life. When we understand, like Micah, the disaster that we are due, and yet the graciousness and faithfulness of God, all we are left to do is marvel at the fact that there is none like him. It's my prayer for us that we would have regular moments like this. And I'll say that some of these moments, they'll they'll happen naturally, that we're amazed at God's goodness. But for most of them, it's gonna take some work. It's gonna take some putting in effort to get to the point where we're marveling at God's goodness. When was the last time that you read enough of this that all you were left to do was ask, who is a God like this? Maybe that could be your new Bible reading goal instead of I gotta get through this book or one chapter a day. Maybe you just read until you're marveling at God's goodness. You're amazed by his graciousness. You're floored by his faithfulness. That'd be a great commitment to make. My hope is that we would all regularly come to a point in our lives and we see God in such a way that we're left with asking the question, who is a God like you? And that we would know that there is none like him because he is more gracious and he is more faithful. There's an old hymn called Pardoning God, A Pardoning God, written about these verses that I'd like to read just a few lines of. It says this, who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Oh, may this strange, this matchless grace, this God-like miracle of love, fill the whole earth with grateful praise and all the angelic choirs above. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? I think you know the answer to that question. Only God, only Jesus pardons grace, pardons sin with grace. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we confess that There is none like you. You show us grace when we least deserve it. 
You pardon our iniquity. You toss all of our sins into the depths of the sea, removing them from us forever. We thank you for your faithfulness in the past. We know that you'll be faithful in the future. Even when we are unfaithful, we don't live up to your standards, and yet you still come through for us. Lord, I pray that we would marvel at how unique you are and that we would respond to these verses by worshiping you and be delighted that you delight in steadfast love. Lord, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.